Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us in a capital on lockdown for the second week in a row. How long will it last? I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Eric Perry, founder and principal of Eric Perry Architects, and established an award-winning practice with a portfolio of notable work. Eric, Hello. Matthew, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for joining us on the program today. Uh, we, of course, find ourselves in a very uh, strange uh, uh, world and circumstance, uh, and we'd be remiss if we didn't touch on it before we got onto our conversation on leadership. How has COVID nineteen affected uh, your practice? Well, it's um, it's business as usual in that our projects run for periods of time more counted in years than months or weeks. So mm. um, we, we are fully engaged with, with the work and nothing has ceased. Um, what has changed is that out of a staff of 77, um, we're all working at home and uh, coordinating through various platforms um, and with our clients. So it's, it's totally, totally radical in terms of physical problems proximity, uh, which has been the norm up to this point. Now, of course, it must have been an interesting challenge focusing on that homework. Uh, was there much transition needed or uh, did things fall into place rather smoothly? Um, I, I can't take uh, responsibility, as it were, for, for the smoothness, but it was remarkable and it was very, very sudden. Uh, we have some, as an industry, we have some uh, experience of this because, for instance, we have work abroad and we're used to Skyping to Asia and time differences. And, you know, that's common to this industry of architecture and, and construction. Um, so that was fine. But actually, we had to set to within a week virtually or 10 days to get the laptops necessary to get the IT systems coordinated. And I I have to thank a fantastic staff who uh, put that into place. Now, of course, uh, dealing a lot in Asia, as you do, uh, you recently won the uh, the contract uh, to design uh, a residence for Her Majesty's ambassador in uh, Beijing. Um, going forward with that project, will that be any sort of difficulties to do with uh, the current COVID-19 uh, situation? Well, just as I've explained, all our meetings uh, are happening, you know, virtually. Um and actually, uh, I, I think because the nature of the, the program is such that construction won't begin immediately, we have to go through a process of planning, of sign-offs, and it's part of a, a bigger uh, campus, um, ambassadorial campus there in Beijing. We're just responsible for the residents. So we're in a flow, and um, I would say that at this planning stage, it's going extremely well. Well, why don't we move on to the subject of leadership? Um, I always like to start the conversation off with a very uh, simple question that sometimes has a rather tricky answer. What does the word leader mean to you? Um, it means to be responsible for others um, in our daily um, cycles. And uh, so it is, it's really a, uh, a position 
where in whatever style or, or, or way one is able to guide and, uh, and see a perspective that you can pass on to others. And how do you pass that perspective on uh, to your staff? Um, I think it's I think it's actually sort of a mix of being astute, I hope, when necessary, um, but also confident in decision making. That that's sometimes not not easy um, with design, where one's crystal balling, and you know you're you're picking up strands from so many areas. But ultimately, you have to be able to um, to to lead by um, by by example and by by giving a clear sort of sense of what people are doing. It's a collective business and one has to, to delegate and with clarity um, the mm. purpose of what we're doing. I hear from a lot of uh, people in, uh, in positions where they had come up through uh, the ranks, as it were, within organizations that they find delegation slightly difficult because uh, they had such a hands-on um, experience earlier on in their career. Do you find this at all? Uh, well, I think my path has been entirely different. Um, so I, I haven't, uh, I, I virtually, except for a year out between two stages of architectural training, I've, I've really not worked for another architect. Mm-hmm. So actually, my my path has been one of uh, of of trial and error <laughs> from from the beginning back in the uh, early eighties till now. How would you describe your uh, style as an architect? Um, architectural style or style uh, of architectural leadership? style. Um, I've, I've grown up through a tradition that is academic, so I, I spent many years teaching, and um, in so doing, I became particularly interested in, in a different scales of making, but you know, it starts for me with a, a sort of sense of uh, urban, the urban condition, city, city making. I've always been fascinated by other places, particularly European tradition. Um, but it then moves down through different scales, obviously, to everything to the door handle one touches. But um, I think it's that sort of a breadth, first of all, and then a very a sensitivity to the context one finds well, oneself uh, working in. Because architecture is very particular. I can use, and I'm very careful to use the word unique, but every building is unique in that it stands upon its own piece of ground. And that ground generally in, in cities and places like that, you know, has a fantastic history. How uh, similar do you believe that uh, buildings need to be to their surroundings? Or can one just be a complete um, uh, change in uh, circumstances? Um, I, I think I would uh, then, then turn that question to uh, the, the social question, because architecture ultimately is, you know, is a framework for society. And I think the more, um, uh, you know, the more civic projects probably need a, a degree of gravitas which would make them stand out. But there's an, an awful lot of architecture, uh, there's an awful lot of architecture which is about fitting in and, uh, and, and working, mm. you know, within the context. And that's more at the everyday, um, which doesn't mean it's it's without character, it does, but it's 
uh, it's important in terms of location. Let's go back to the very beginning of uh, your working life when you first started out uh, in the world. Um, Did you have any particular examples to follow, any role models who shaped you into the leader you are today? Um, I think they, they would, uh, they would break down into two, two parts. One is academic, uh, and one is more practical. Um, so no, I didn't, I didn't grow up in a family that had anything to do with architecture. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, that was something I found through, through, I think passing different places because I grew up abroad and, um, and I came to visit and and understand a bit of, of comparative culture, really, differences. Um, and that intrigued me um, and led me to, in due course through, through reading and interest, to decide that I wanted to study architecture at quite an early age, at about the age of 15. Now, of course, uh, young people getting into architecture these days, uh, what's the most important thing that they need to know? Uh, I think the thing that that is probably not well understood is that uh, architecture is is about collective ability rather than what one might perceive initially as as being, you know, a world of prima donnas. So um, I've always seen that uh, filmmaking, you know, is is a good analogy in that each of the disciplines that come together to make a film, you know, have their own standing and status. the same is rather true in terms of architecture, but I think if you're going to withstand the buffeting you inevitably have from the first moment of entering architecture school and criticism, you know, things that you put on a wall or produce, um, you know, that actually you need to build upon a sort of sense of ability and ease. You need to be at ease with, with this discipline, otherwise you're going to be unhappy. Well, unfortunately, our time together has drawn to its close. Um, but before I let you go, what does the next 12 months have in store for Eric Perry Architects? Uh, well, we have some very exciting projects. So you, you've mentioned one, which is the, the ambassador's residence in Beijing. Um, we're working on an incredibly interesting uh, project in the city of London to create a new uh, set of law courts and, and a police headquarters and one other building all together. Um, and we're working, uh, we're working on a mental health hospital. So the projects are, are more um, civic, more social, and incredibly interesting. So that's our next 12 months in a capsule. Well, Eric, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing leadership with you. And I very much hope that you come back on the program when things have quieted down outside a bit and we can have a, a more in-depth discussion. Eric, thank you. Thank you, Matthew. That was Eric Perry, founder and principal of Eric Perry Architects. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Uh, we're joined uh, today by uh, David Blunkett, Lord Blunkett, former Home Secretary, former Education Secretary. David, thank you very much for joining us today. You're very welcome. Uh, it's always a pleasure. But uh, since we are talking around the theme of Leadership, it would be a remiss of me if we didn't start with the leadership election going on in the Labour Party. Apart from, I'm sure you're delighted that a certain someone is leaving a post. What are your thoughts on it so far? Well, I think the party membership have got to make a very clear decision. Uh, are they in, in the stands watching or are they on the pitch 
playing. And if they want to play, then the two candidates that are in for the future are Lisa Nandy and Keir Starmer. I'm personally backing Lisa because I think she's a brave woman with a tremendous amount to give. She's got really good, positive ideas. I like them because they're about building from the community rather than command and control from the centre. They're about a new form of social democracy and socialism rather than trying to replicate a failed past. And she can reach out to people that others can't. So I'm I'm giving her my backing. I think Keir Starmer is very professional, mm. very able, and presents extremely well. And I, I hope that one of those two uh, actually come through in the election on the 4th of April. Uh, there has been a lot of criticism, especially from... Uh, for uh, candidates a little further left um, than them who've criticised even the last Labour uh, uh, government as being part of 40 years of Thatcherism. Yes, I think it's really unfortunate, uh, particularly when new MPs come in having seen large swathes of their colleagues lose their seat, uh, to roll up the 13 years of Labour government with everything that I'm so proud of. I mean, I, we, we were not neoliberals or anything like it. We were able, in the first 10 years certainly, uh, which I played a part in, to be able to turn the economy around, to invest in health and education, to be able to transform people's aspirations and their hopes for the, the future. And that included ensuring people got the minimum wage, which we never had before, Sure start to nurture youngsters from the most moment they were born, transformation in the quality of education. And all these things actually add up to helping people to improve and change their lives for the better. And anyone who thinks that's not good and that isn't a government to be proud of needs to answer the question, what chivalet is it that you would want that would actually have done more to change those lives? I can think of two or three myself in terms Mm. of uh, dramatically taking on uh, inequality, although half a million children were taken out of poverty in those years. I can think of being even tougher on crime, even though I was dubbed as one of the tougher home secretaries because the people that I cared about most were, on the whole, not exclusively, but mainly the victims of crime. I can think about taking on the very, very rapidly growing transnational power of the big tech companies, which we still need to work through in terms of how we do that from a a single nation just off the coast of Europe, and how we work internationally without getting caught up in wars we don't want to be involved in, but how, how are we international in a way that ensures that we play our part in making a better life for humanity as a whole, rather than disengaging and becoming alien from the rest of the world. Those are big questions for the social democratic left, particularly with artificial intelligence and robotics changing the world of work forever, I think, in the next 20 years. Uh, An ageing population. Labour got 18% of the over-65 vote in the general election. Just 18%. It's staggeringly... It's extraordinary. Staggeringly bad. Um, And And climate change, which we all know is going to be either a big gain or a terrific political trauma. We've got to take people with us. No matter uh, which political party it is, the changes that will occur in this decade especially will determine their future ideologies, certainly. And speaking of your time uh, as Home Section in government, 
Um, you worked with so many different individuals of all political stripes and none at all. Is there someone, and on the theme of leadership, that stands out to you that embodies some of those qualities you described earlier? Yes, I mean, I, it's on the theme of bottom-up, it was some of the most inspiring uh, head teachers and classroom teachers who, in really, really difficult circumstances, were actually transforming the life chances of children by inspiring those children to want to learn, to, if you like, lighting a candle inside them, uh, giving them a, a, a window on the world, which created an inquiring mind and an understanding that the world was their oyster, that they could do things with support. My, my philosophy has always been mutuality and reciprocity. We, we need mutuality to support each other. We need reciprocity in terms of understanding that we don't just take, we, we give a lot as well. And I suppose that really comes down to uh, if you're prepared to do something for yourself, we're prepared to do something to help you. And that's fundamentally in education, but it is in all sorts of walks of life as well. So you can have innovation, you can have entrepreneurship and creativity in, in business, you can have the way in which people turn things around for themselves. Small businesses have done that, the contribution to... Uh, new ways of doing things, of thinking differently about our economy. Th those are all grit to the mill. Those are the things we need to do. And we can do them together. It's not that you're on the side of the devil if you're an entrepreneur or you're on the side of the angels if you work in public services. We, we are mm. dependent on each other. Oh, you can't have one without the other. Yes. Um, and I think to coin a term... Uh, uh, extraordinary, ordinary people, and especially when it comes to, given your answer, David to uh, teachers, to carers, people that honestly don't get the recognition they deserve on a day-to-day -day basis. And without them, half of society wouldn't function. I completely. I, I call it civil society, which functions even when government isn't functioning. It's, what, it's the glue that holds things together. It's people working and living and having their being together and recognising that they are dependent on each other. I, I've obviously met incredibly inspiring leaders in a different vein, I was very fortunate to have met Nelson Mandela three times. Uh, I met Bill Clinton a number of times, both of whom, in very, very different ways, were inspiring leaders. I've met people in leadership positions who couldn't take a decision to save their lives. Uh, Tony Blair famously said in the, his conference speech the year before he stood down as Prime Minister... And I, I knew exactly what he meant. He said the worst ministers are those who won't take decisions. And anyone in a leadership role needs to, A, know why they're there, what they intend to do with the uh, authority mm. that goes with being a leader and a manager, and then how to draw people in as a team to be able to implement it so that it's a team approach. It's not someone out on a white charger. It's someone who can mobilise, motivate, provide incentives for people to feel that they're part of the solution as well. Uh, and I think whether it's politics, whether it's business, whether it's sport, it's exactly those qualities that you need to succeed in any of them. Yes, it is. And if people recognise that and they have a clear idea themselves, they, they have and build, because you can't build, leadership qualities, they know how to manage their own time and their own emotions because we all, from time to time, feel like really losing our temper and... I don't pretend for a minute over the years <laughs> that, that I haven't. How, how to control your own 
feelings and emotion and how to bring the best out in other people's how how you work out that people who are really good don't threaten you they compliment you people who have complementary skills to you are really valuable and i suppose the ability to listen not just for its own sake mm-hmm. but to listen because you are conglomerating i suppose you would call it plagiarizing thoughts ideas ways forward from everyone around you i often think that um, football managers wouldn't do too bad a job if they actually talk to the fans after the game well, everyone knows, uh, David, you know, you're a big Sheffield Wednesday fan. It I know. can't be easy having to hear the it, praise of Chris Wilder and Sheffield United every week after no, week. No, it isn't, although it's damn good for Sheffield, so I'm being a bit magnanimous at the moment. That's very good About Sheffield United in the Premier League, because it, it, it does change. It lifts the image of the city internationally. If you're Not just because it's Sheffield United, but because if you're playing Liverpool uh, and you're playing Man City then that's a global audience. You're immediately beamed across the world. So that's good. I, I, I could cry sometimes. We can, we can beat uh, Brighton, Premier League side, in the FA Cup at Brighton. We can beat Leeds at Leeds. I was there when we beat them 2-0 in January. And then you can lose 5-0. And then five you lose 5-0 at home to Blackburn and half the fans were out of the ground by by half time what, what would a manager blanket say in the situation i i would have asked myself a very simple question what went wrong with motivating those players so that when they came out on the field they walked instead of ran they didn't have any of the passion they'd had the week before at leeds they showed no drive and incentive to take hold of the game what what went wrong with the same players who'd played very well the week previously and if you could answer that question and there may have something may have happened who knows something during the morning before the game started something may have gone sour you get the answer to that question and you then start to ensure that we never never do this again well i'm a chelsea fan so i'm beginning to feel your pain at the minute um (laughs) but i would like to pick up on another point you just made actually david about choosing a strong team people that compliment you a lot of criticism that uh, Theresa May got as Prime Minister was that she tended not to pick perhaps the more ambitious, the more uh, 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 people uh, uh, ministers that might well challenge her. One of Boris Johnson's, for all his faults, uh, he has been said in the past, he's a man that picks people that are good at their briefs. Do you agree with that? Assistant? Well, I'll reserve judgment on that until I see the outcome of the reshuffle, which as we record this podcast has not yet happened mm. and i imagine i i would be very surprised if he didn't have quite a brutal reshuffle not just to get people in who he likes but people who are going to be really sparky and able and clear at doing the job because you can have all the best ideas in the world you can pronounce on what you're going to do but if you haven't got leaders in those departments prepared to do it if they're just toadies by the way and there is a tendency a new mm. prime minister large majority got to be very careful that you don't pick people because you're receiving the echo of your own voice uh, when you're speaking to them but get able people in I, I, I won't comment on some of the less able but there are <laughs> clearly in the cabinet as i speak at the moment people who are really just not up to it i mean incidentally anyone who won't be cross-examined 
by decent journalists on the BBC, who've changed their minds recently about mm. Sky, <clears throat> isn't worth their salt. If, but part of being cross-questioned is to demonstrate to yourself that you've got a grasp of your brief, that you believe in it, and that you can persuade people of it. And if you can't do that under real cross-examination rather than sitting on the sofa a, for a, a, an easy morning television program, get out of the business. You know, don't do not do Without it. a doubt. Yeah. Uh, that's, and also, I should add, that is how uh, all Stripes earn that respect in the first place. But there is a question, isn't I'm there? I'm trying to answer the questions. That's, <laughs> that's what I always tried to answer the or questions. Or be very good at avoiding them. Either way. Um, oh, well, the, the way of avoiding them is to take it head on and say, I'm, I'm not going to answer that question. Explain why. Not quite. Uh, <laughs> the, um, and I think one of the great things about uh, the Lise Castle especially is that um, it takes and talks to people, again, from all different backgrounds, leading something very different, whether it's a charity, whether it's a business, whether it's in politics. There comes points, though, and David, you must have experienced this, whether it's leading Sheffield City Council or as Home Secretary. When people are looking at you for leadership, where do you get your strength from? I think there's something inside all of us. There's a tenacity, there's a, an ambition, there's a desire to get things done, to make a difference inside you, whether you're in public service, the charities, or you're driving a business that actually says, this is why I get up in the morning. So you've got to have something internal to yourself. The, the second is the satisfaction you get back because you do from seeing things change for the better. You, you can take pride without being egotistical. There's nothing wrong with being proud of what you do and to want to do it even better. And that's why you need both sharp minds around you. In my case, it was special advisors as, as well as ministers. I pretty well picked my ministers. Sometimes Tony asked me to take people who I was a little bit iffy about and we had to meld people into the team. I was able to pick all my own special advisors and that really did make a difference. Mm. But in, in the end, you've got to like what you're doing. I mean, the, the, the people who are un, unhappy in their skin, they, they, it's very difficult to perform if you're in the wrong business or in the wrong department of a business or if you're really hating teaching or in politics, you... You're just in the wrong department. I was very lucky because education and employment were my first loves in terms of what I wanted to do, and I got the job for four years. I'd then come to the conclusion that there were really big challenges for us. It turned out even bigger than I expected with the attack on the World Trade Center mm. three months after I became Home Secretary. But the big challenges of security, of reducing crime, of dealing with... The development of positive citizenship, which also had a readover in terms of immigration, the kind of things that change people's lives either for the better or the worse. And you don't get everything right. That's the other thing you've got to recognise, which is why being part of a broader team, being able to take criticism but not always accept it <laughs> because otherwise you blow with the wind, that, that, that's the, the measure and I think if we can share those traits, those experiences, those different elements through the Leadership Council, if we can get people from very, very different leadership managerial roles and delivery roles to actually be able to share that experience, everyone 
will gain something from it because that dialogue will inform, it will avoid people reinventing the wheel, it will take people a lot further than the, the niche, for good or ill, the niche that they're in at the moment. Um, David, the very, uh, in a couple of minutes we have left, um, I will be mean and put you on the spot and ask you for predictions perhaps in three things. What will happen in the Labour leadership contest? How will the next few months go for the government after Brexit, uh, well, after we leave the European Union on the 31st of January, and where will Sheffield Wednesday finish in the league? Lord above. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure which is the most difficult of those <laughs> questions. I, I've already in indicated where my support is for the, the Labour leadership. If we take it at the end of January 2020... Keir Starmer has clearly got a got off to a very very um, strong start. I think, however, it will be very much down to who can reach those parts of the Labour Party membership that came in on the back of Jeremy Corbyn's election in 2015 to that post, who can be persuaded that what they want to see and the change, the big changes they'd like to enact can only be brought about in any form if we win and we win back the people the tragic loss of people on our side uh, mm. in December 2019 uh, and that that's got to be Lisa Nandi or, or Kia on on the, um, the the next few months I think that the government will probably do quite well I I, I think that there are real dangers ahead in just having 11 months to negotiate trade deals, especially with bellicose pronouncements about we're not going to have alignment, as though alignment in itself is a bad thing when some of it will be very good. So I think there are dangers, but I think there's quite a bit of momentum going with the government at the moment, and that will be reflected in relationships in doing deals in Europe and facing outwards to the rest of the world. Sheffield Wednesday, God help me. I mean, you know, how is it that two of the things that are most important to me, other than my f family and loved ones, is football and, and politics? I think Sheffield Wednesday will be hard-pressed now to get into the playoffs. If we do, I think we could pull it off, but I am really reluctant. And I think on that prediction, your reputation will be judged. Lord Blanket, thank you very much for joining us God today. God bless you, Jonathan. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.